Good to see everybody. Beautiful Sunday morning. You guys awake? Some of us are not because we were out camping with the youngsters. It was fun. Some were in the creek catching crawdads in the freezing cold. Some of us were playing football, having a good time. Some of us were older and pulling our hammies as we ran past the kids. We had a good time. And then this morning, the coffee truck pulled up. I mean, living large. Beautiful morning. It is a joy to be with you, and we're enjoying a sermon series together called Contemporary Issues. It's a contemporary issue series. I've found it very edifying so far, encouraging, challenging, equipping us to live a godly life in this culture. And so today, what we're looking at specifically is ethical decision-making. How should we behave, in other words? How do we make the choices about how we should behave? And so here we're concerned with ethics. You're going to see in a second that what we're talking about is ethics. Ethics. Let's define ethics for a minute. It's, it's the study of right and wrong or why or how we make moral choices. You ever been faced with one of those decisions? What do I do? What do I do? Or maybe even this is a gray area. There's not a specific scripture on it. How should I therefore behave? And so we're going to look at that this morning. First, we're going to lay a foundation. We're going to look at how we make decisions, and why we believe there is right and wrong. As Christians, I think you're moral absolutists, and we'll talk about that. I think you believe there is a right and a wrong, okay? So it's the study of right and wrong, why and how we make moral choices. And then we need to ask a more fundamental question before we get to the specifics about what choices to make and how we make them. Is there such thing as right and wrong in the first place? Is there a source for right and wrong? Is there a foundation? I mean, who says what's right? Who says what's wrong? Do you feel that in our culture? Moral relativism all around us, a post-modern, a post-Christian nation is what we're living in, where truth is questioned. It's the same question that Pilate asked, <laughs> what is truth? That question is still being answered and brought up. And so I want to make the point that what you believe about ethics, right and wrong, is ultimately rooted in your worldview. Your worldview is the pair of glasses through which you perceive the world, through how you look at the world. I want to say not just your worldview, but let's get more specific. Your theology will affect your decision-making, your ethics. What you believe about God, remember what A.E.W. Tozer said? What you believe about God is the most important thing about you because it'll shape the way you live. This is a biblical worldview. Your foot bone is connected to your brain bone. You will walk... You will live according to what you think about God and the world around you. Your foot bone is connected to your brain bone. That's not anatomically correct language, but I think you get the point. A.W. Tozer said, what you believe about God is the most important thing about you. Look at how people behave, and you can trace that right back to the roots of their belief system. And, and so we'll see that our behavior, our attitudes, is grounded in our theology and our worldview. And so your worldview, again, is a, is a pair of glasses through which you see the world. And so first, we're going to look at this foundation. We're going to take a little time here. What is the source of your moral decision-making? And so let's get started with a little thought experiment, okay? Let's get you started to started thinking about why you make the choices you make, and, and let's see where, where your worldview is. So far in this uh, series, Contemporary Issues, we have looked at some really important issues. We have looked at men's and women's roles. We have looked at sexuality and race. And when considering these issues, 
questions arise about how we should behave and what our attitude should be. That's part of the discussion when you deal with these kind of issues. So here are some questions for you to wrestle with. Is it right for a man to take the role of a leader, protector in his home? I think most of us would say that is biblically correct. That's God's design. But there are other people who will say, that's patriarchal chauvinism. That's not right. That's not right. All people are equal. We're made in God's image, and so we should be equal on every level. My mom, who is a wonderful, sweet, religious lady, but not a believer, doesn't know about the grace of God, doesn't, doesn't receive it yet, would say this to me. You're a chauvinist pig. Well, I love you, but I disagree. Why do I believe that I should take a leadership role in my home and serve and love my wife in that way? Well, number two, what's wrong with a man emo emotionally and physically abusing his wife? I think we would all agree that's wrong, but why? Can you make an absolute statement that is wrong across the board? And here's why. Someone say, hey, someone would say, listen, we're, we're just animals. We're just the end product of a of time, chance, mutation, natural selection, survival of the fittest man. Three, when it comes to sexuality, is it wrong for a couple to be physically intimate before marriage? And why not live together and try things out first? In pastoral ministry, I dealt with that question quite a bit. Well, we already love each other. We already know we're going to get married, so why not take it for a test drive? We're just going to live together first. Number four, and, and if you love someone... Even if they're of the same sex, who's to say that it's wrong to be sexually intimate or to get married? I mean, love is love, right? Who are you to judge? Or on that matter of sexuality, pornography, which is an epidemic in the local church, especially among men, unfortunately. Is it really wrong to watch it in private? I mean, it's not hurting anybody. Why not? Why is it wrong? Or let's get a little more epic here, racism. What if you lived in the 1930s and the 1940s? You're living under Adolf Hitler's Germany, and he has determined that there are reasons why Jews need to be exterminated. They're a plague on society, he says. He is absolutely convinced, and he could show you reasons why they're a major source of evil in society. And so by eliminating them, it's for the greater good. It rids the nation and society of problems. They're a detriment to society. And so we're looking for a better world. And so it actually became a law in Nazi Germany to turn in Jews, and it was okay to exterminate them. Was it truly wrong? On what basis do you say it was inherently wrong and evil? And so you, you probably were brought up with certain things that you believed were morally right and, and morally wrong, but have you ever stopped to consider why those ideas are right or wrong and where those ideas come from? So some people believe that society decides what acceptable behavior is. And if that's true, if society decides what right and wrong is, then really morality is simply what you were raised to believe, right? And, but here's the thing, moral ideas that you learned from your culture, are they also true for other cultures? Your moral ideas, are they true for people halfway around the world? Are they true, your standards, are they true for someone who lived 500 years ago or for someone living 500 years in the future? Is morality something that changes with time and location or culture? Or how about from person to person? Who says what right is anyway? Doesn't it all depend on the situation? Now, let's go back to our experiment again. I gave you certain scenarios and I asked you to make some moral choices about men's and women's roles, about sexuality, about race, and I know you had opinions. 
Now, why did you make the choices you made? Why did you mentally take the stand that you took? I mean, it's, it's obvious that some behavior is right, I think, and some is wrong. I think we would agree on that. You, you shouldn't think that harming a child is ever good. I think we would all disagree with that. I think we all would look down on people who are not courageous. We would see that as discouraging. Or we would find it repulsive if someone were to poke you in the eye with a stick. Or murder, we know is wrong. All cultures agree on murder being wrong for the most part. Or stealing, we know it's wrong. All these actions that we've mentioned are wrong. Where do we get these ideas of right and wrong anyway? Well, I want to show you that there are really three approaches, three ways to come to this question of how to decide what right and wrong are. Look at your source of belief. Well, there are three approaches. Here they are. First, the first way that people will often determine right from wrong is to base their ethical decisions on personal preference. You've heard it before. I say what is right from me. And this position is called individual moral relativism. Everything's relative. It's ultimately determined right and wrong. My ethical decisions is determined by me and how I feel and what my preferences are, what's right for me. I mean, that morality is really up to the person. Moral decisions are subjective and they're based on your feelings. And in the end, morality is individual to the, it's, it's relative to the individual. And so maybe you've heard someone say, you know, you shouldn't be forcing your morality and your Christianity on someone else. Have you ever heard that? Who are you to go as a missionary and, and change someone else's worldview or to make a moral judgment about them? It's not politically correct. There's a, another way of looking at things. So that's individual moral relativism. And then there's a, a, another form of moral relativism. It's called cultural moral relativism. It's where the community or the culture decides what right and wrong is. It's not just your personal preference, but what works best for the community or the culture. And so the culture determines what right and wrong is. This means that each culture determines how everyone in that culture should live. And so, uh, for example, there was once a, a primitive tribe, and you can read about this in a missionary story. It, it's a primitive tribe that, that held that betrayal, betraying someone, was actually a superior act of courage. So imagine the first missionary shock when he presented the story of Jesus' last supper with his disciples, and the tribe thought that Judas was the hero because he betrayed Jesus. So what if the culture holds that slavery is acceptable, and cultures have, or that homosexuality is a virtue, and our culture does, or that abortion is a right and almost a virtue anymore, our culture does? What if exterminating a certain race is morally acceptable in your culture? What if, if you have a certain amount of melanin, more or less, you're inferior or superior, and we can do what we want to you? I don't know that we're so far away from that. The question is, do you have any grounds for making your moral judgments on these cultures? What is your source? What is your authority? Many modern people, whether they know it or not, even Christians, tend to live practically like moral relativists at some level. Do you? Do you live practically like a moral relativist? Well, I know that's what the Word of God says, but this is what I feel. This is who I am. This is what I want to do. You wouldn't say it like that, but we live like that sometimes. I do too. The church is full of hypocrites, they say. It's true. That's why we need a Savior. Now, what worldviews give rise to this kind of moral relativism? I mean, I, it's easy to talk about, but paint a more detailed picture for me here. Show me what moral relativism looks like. 
Well, there are two worldviews, essentially, that hold to moral relativism on some level, whether it's individual or cultural. The first would be uh, naturalism. Naturalism teaches that there is, there is no God that I have to answer to. There's no God outside of the, the, to- the box of the universe. There's nothing outside the box. Everything is in the box, you and me, and there's no supernatural. All that exists is the things that you see and feel and measure and touch, the physical world. So there's nothing immaterial, God or spirits or angels, we're all there is. We're at the center of the universe. And so who, who believes things like that? Well, of course, there are a number, number of forms that hold to a form of naturalism, atheism, materialism. Materialism says all there is is the stuff in the box, the material world. Hedonism, hedonism says live for the pleasure of life, and this is all there is, so eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Or how about humanism? Humanism says all there is is man. Man is at the center of the universe. Essentially, we are the masters of our identity and our destiny. We live how we want. We're the masters of our ship. That's, those are forms of naturalism, and they would hold to a moral relativism. There's no one to answer to. There's no ultimate standard. It's all relative. There's no accountability. There's no one to hold me accountable, no moral code by which to live by. It's up to you or your society. Nobody should have a right to tell me what to do with my life. That's how a lot of people live. That's what we're seeing happening on the news. And then there's another form, another worldview that holds to moral relativism. It's called transcendentalism. There's no quiz, so don't worry. Transcendentalism. While it's not an atheistic worldview, it does hold that we are God. It's a, it's a worldview that holds to pantheism, pan-all-theism God. Everything's God. I'm God. You're God. Isn't that exciting? You're God. Oh, man, we're in trouble if you're God or I'm God, but that's what they believe. Pantheism. Everything is creation, and everything is God. There's no distinction between creator and creation. Everything is God. Everything is divine. Therefore, think about this. If you're God, can you ever really sin? You can do whatever you want, moral relativism. Whatever choice you, whatever impu- impulse you have, act on it. You're God, and it's not a sin. And so there's a, a major problem here. There's a major blur between right and wrong, good and evil. You can't say what right and wrong is to someone because they're God, and they'll decide what's right for themselves. So there's no moral code. Boy, it's just chaos. Transcendentalism, it, it basically, it, it says... Be spiritually conscious and look within. Isn't that like every graduation speech you have ever heard in the secular world? Go and just look within. Believe in yourself. Look within yourself. All the answers are there. Scary. Transcendentalism, in other words, has all the benefits of spirituality without any of the responsibility. Here are some forms of it. Hinduism, Buddhism, Confucianism, Shintoism. American versions would be Scientology. We see some of this idea uh, in horoscopes, in Wicca white witchcraft, tarot cards, astrology. You see the common denominator on all these? You don't look outside yourself for moral truth or a standard. You look within. You look within because naturalism, there is no God. You're the answer. You're the center of the universe. You're all there is. Transcendentalism, you are God, so you look within again. I want to show you really quickly, and and we are getting to Scripture, right? We're getting to Scripture because we need some standards of truth. Here are the problems with these worldviews. Here are the problems. Bad ideas have consequences. Bad ideas, bad worldviews have victims. Here's the first problem with moral relativism that's all around us today and that we as believers need to stand up against. Both of these 
whether it's moral relativism on the individual level or the corporate level, they look inside. And since the human heart, according to scripture, is deceitfully wicked. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart, the human heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? So if the human heart is deceptive, looking within ourselves for a standard of good and evil is to search in the wrong place. C.S. Lewis said, those who stand outside all judgments of value cannot have any ground for preferring one of their own impulses to another except by emotional strength of their impulse. I prefer my impulse over yours because mine's stronger. So if there is no standard outside of ourselves, like a creator, like his revealed word, then we only have to base our ethical decisions on what we feel is right. What if what you feel is right actually hurts someone, though? Or if it feels good to riot and loot, take vengeance, and it's working, we're getting people's attention. Is it wrong? Or is it right? It feels right to some. Because our feelings are unstable and sometimes lacking perspective, using them as the moral standard will only lead to confusion and chaos. And a second problem with this moral relativism in our culture is this. Second problem is that if morality changes with each individual or culture, then every moral argument boils down to just one preference against another preference. The great Francis Schaeffer said, he observed this, if there is no absolute beyond man's ideas, then there is no final appeal to judge between individuals and groups whose moral judgments conflict. We are merely left with conflicting opinions. So here's the problem. What if two people disagree? What if two cultures or nations disagree on what's right and wrong? To whom do they appeal to settle the disagreements? To what do they appeal? In the end, those who have more power will ultimately determine what's right and wrong. In other words, might makes right. Might makes right. We've seen what moral relativism can do. It's a bad idea, and it has victims. Look at world history. What's the other option, then? If it's not moral relativism on the individual or community level, is there a standard? Well, we are theists. We believe there's a God. We're Christians. We believe there's a God who has revealed himself and spoken. He's come into time and space. He's gotten down on our level. In the person of the Lord Jesus, the word became flesh and he dwelled among us. And he's communicated God's heart, God's character, God's will. Praise God. We're not left in the dark. We have light on our path. So in contrast to moral relativism, there is moral absolutism, if you want the big fancy terminology. And I know you do. I know you're hungry for it. Here's the thing. It states that there is a standard of right and wrong, this worldview. It's a Christian worldview, by the way. It believes there's right and wrong standards regardless of the time, the location, the personal preference, or the culture. There is absolute truth. This is the position of the Christian worldview with right and wrong being, listen to this, right and wrong are ultimately grounded in God's nature, his character, and the way he's designed the world. Right and wrong is, it's grounded. When your mom and dad say to do something and then they back it up with scripture, that should be enough. That's your opinion. Why should I do it? Well, based on God's word, there's an absolute standard outside of us who says so. Our right and wrong, we understand, exists. There is a moral law because there's a moral law giver. Moreover, since God's character is unchanging and eternal, his laws, his moral laws, as revealed in scripture, are eternal. They're the same as his attributes. They don't change. So according to a Christian worldview, a biblical worldview, morals do not change, but they 
They remain absolute regardless of the preferences of a culture or a person. In other words, a moral absolute is true for all people at all times in all situations. Let me again emphasize that ethics, our ethics, should be grounded in God's character and design as revealed in Scripture. That is the guidebook, isn't it? B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth. Let me, let me show you. I'm, I'm making the point here that, that God's character is the foundation. His design is the foundation for our moral absolutes. And this is where we should go when we're making decisions. Our God, thankfully, is a speaking God. There was nothing, and then he spoke into nothing, and nothing obeyed. That's how powerful he is. Right? What is nothing, by the way? Aristotle said, nothing is what rocks think about. Hmm. God spoke into nothing. Let there be light, and there was light. He is all-powerful. But he's also a God who could, at the burning bush, say to Moses, Moses, you're going to go, and I'm going to use you to deliver my people. And he says, well, God, who am I to say has sent me to say to Pharaoh, let my people go? And God says, I am that I am. God gives his personal name to Moses. He is a God who speaks. He has great authority. He's a God who speaks. He is a God who speaks to us. He's a, he's a personal, intimate God. He's a, above us, and yet he's a God who wants to be with us. Praise him. And so if our God is a, a holy God and he's revealed that he's a holy God, the people of God should be a holy people. That's what First Peter says. Be holy because it's my preference. No, because your God is holy. Or I think of, uh, of a number of other passages like in 1 John, all over the place in 1 John, Beloved, let us love one another. Why? What if they annoy me? Because love comes from God. And then verse 16 of chapter 4 says, God is love. Love is not God, but God is love in his character. And then we could go to Micah 6.8, where all the commandments are boiled down to three, if you will. And we have a just God, and so we should be a people who do justice. We have a God who is kind. Have you noticed that? And so we should be a kind people. It's a fruit of the Spirit that God wants to reproduce in our lives. And our God is a God who, although he existed in the form of God, he didn't regard equality with God as something to use to his own advantage. But he emptied himself and made himself low by taking on the form of a bondservant, humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And if you know a God like that, who's willing to stoop down and condescend and meet us where we're at, then should we not be a people who walk humbly before our God? See, our our Christian worldview, our gospel-centered theology shapes the way we live. Remember, your foot bone is connected to your brain bone. And so, because of God's character and having had it revealed to us, we know how we therefore should live. I love that the Lord Jesus can take the 613 commandments of the Old Testament and boil them down to two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. Tell you what, if you're loving God with all your heart, you're not going to be sinning against your God. And if you're loving your neighbor as yourself, you won't be coveting, you won't be harming them, you won't be angry at them in an unjust way. You won't be harming your neighbor. This is our God speaking in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we know how we should live. And with regard to God's design, so we know how we should live in light of God's character. That's the foundation for our ethical decision making. Also just God's design, how he's made the world to function. Don't you want to function at high capacity? Don't you want to live according to the, the owner's manual? Things don't go well when we ignore the owner's manual. Ask Wesley. He works on trucks and cars and tractors all the time. Just ask him. See, because our God has made us in his image to have a relationship with him and to relate to him and to rule on his behalf, therefore there's all these image bearers of God all around. They have dignity and they have value. 
Every human being has value. So that means that there's no place for racism. And there's no place for murder. And there's no place for abortion. If God has designed marriage to be between a man and a woman in a lifelong permanent relationship, a relationship that actually is a picture of the gospel, then we can reject alternative lifestyles. We can love the people, but we can make moral judgments. You can love people and disagree with them, by the way. You can do that. May we be inclusive and exclusive. Exclusive with the truth and inclusive, welcoming all to the Savior's cross. See, we can actually say things are right and wrong, and we can make judgments on cultures. Some cultures say it's good to love your neighbor. There are some cultures that say it's good to eat your neighbor. We can make moral judgments. Don't eat your neighbor, okay? We look at God's character. We look at God's design. We find this in Scripture. Again, the ultimate ethical principles are revealed for us through special revelation, God's word, the Bible. And so that's where we go. We go to God's word. May we know it well. Jesus says, abide in me, abide in my word. Be in his word. Be plugged in. Know your Savior's heart and his will. And then you can pray according to his will and you can see an effective prayer life as well. But as we get ready to close up, there's a second part to all this. Recommendations for representation. That is right here in front of you. Right in front of you. Recommendations for representation. You know where I got this? Good friend of my guy. Uh, a good friend of mine. His name's Mr. John Glock. Uh, Linda, you ever heard of him? Nice guy. I think you'd like him. Recommendations for representation. I love John, and he is a father at Tri-State, and so he came to Tri-State, and this was on his heart this year at Tri-State. We're, we're looking at identity. Who are we according to God's definition? We look at the carnival mirrors all around us in our culture, and we get a distorted vision of ourselves. But when we look into the mirror of God's word, like James says, we see who we really are by God's definition, by God's standards. Don't you want to know what your creator has to say about you? Well, we want to encourage the young people to think of themselves as in Christ. And in Christ, John said, don't forget, you are a representation. You're a representative. You're an ambassador of your king, King Jesus. And so we need to live like that this year. And that goes for all of us here. We need to remember that we're representing our master, our savior, our king, and he's coming soon. So how should we live in front of him? Well, we can often turn to God's word, and, and he has clear commands for how we should live. But there are sometimes situations where scripture doesn't address an issue. What do you do then? This is the, the question of Christian liberties. One of my former profs said, this is what a Christian liberty is. Christian liberty involves practices not covered in scripture by a moral absolute that either commands or forbids it. Such activities, scripturally speaking, are morally indifferent. Still, because of social and cultural background, individuals may find such practices offensive. So let me give you some examples of what I'm talking about. Examples help us understand what's at stake here. Scripture prohibits drunkenness. No doubt. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Don't be filled with wine but be filled by the Holy Spirit instead. And while some think that an occasional drink of alcohol is forbidden, others will cite, for example, Paul's advice to Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, hold off from water for a while, use a little wine for your stomach and illness. As evidence, they put this forward as uh, evidence for an occasional drink being morally indifferent, not a problem. And so many Christians say it's right, some say it's wrong, but I don't think scripture addresses it specifically other than to say drunkenness is a sin. 
Others find, other American Christians find card playing morally indifferent as long as there's no gambling involved. Likewise, many think that social dancing is acceptable if the intent of the heart, the intent of the dancer, is not to arouse lust or impure thoughts. Despite the lack of moral absolutes to cover these particular issues and practices, some believers find them offensive nevertheless. So should Christians partake in these things or not? How should we decide whether to indulge or refrain? These are the issues at stake when we're discussing Christian liberty. And we don't want a church to be divided over these indifferences. And thank God, we do have recommendations for representation. We have a number of scriptural principles that teach us how we should live, how we should make these choices when there are gray areas. So Paul's fundamental point when he gets to Romans 14 and 15, I would encourage you, look at Romans 14 and 15. Paul discusses this whole question of Christian liberties at great length in those two chapters, Romans 14 and 15. The practices under question are, in this situation, eating meats that have been offered to idols or and observing one particular day as special over another. But the principles that Paul teaches in those chapters about these issues, they cover morally indifferent practices in our day as well. So I think you can apply chapter 14 and 15 of Romans to yourself as a modern Christian. Paul's fundamental point, though, is that no one has the right to impose his scruples on others in these gray areas. Those who indulge must not despise those who do not. And those who refrain must not judge those who do indulge. Romans 14.3. If there is any judgment at all, it must be done by each person concerning himself and by Christ who judges the heart. Romans 14.4 and verse 10 through 13. Each person should decide with the Spirit's guidance and help through prayer which practice is right for him or her and which practices are not. But how do you know which practice is right for you or wrong? I think, again, we can look at these recommendations. Can we just go through them really quickly, highlight a few of them at least? Here are some things we would ask ourselves when it comes to this issue that's not specifically addressed in Scripture. Is there any specific scriptural command prohibiting it? I can think of John 14 where Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. We keep his commandments because we love him. And so if he said something is prohibited, we, we want to refrain. But then if it's not prohibited, we ask these questions. And there are others that you can ask. These are just some recommendations for representation. Can I do it with a clear conscience, without any misgiving, and having no guilt feelings from within? If there is doubt, then don't do it. Romans 14 makes it clear. Whoever doubts, Paul says, is condemned. We should do what we do in faith and with a good conscience. Even if it was inherently not wrong, but you did it with a guilty conscience, that doesn't please God. Will it cause a weaker brother in Christ or a weaker sister in Christ to stumble or will it impair their growth? So we might have a liberty, but we should put love first. We don't want to stumble a brother or sister. And if you want to partake and not harm another's faith, here's something to consider. Romans 14 verse 22 says, whatever you believe about these things, keep them between you and God. Whatever you believe about things, keep between you and God. Partake in private and not stumble a brother or sister. Will I hinder my testimony to the unsaved? We're taking a, a long view here. We're, we're taking a gospel-centered perspective. We're, we're looking at the world around us with love and compassion. We're saying, what I'm doing, 
It's not inherently wrong, but will it harm my testimony with my unsaved neighbor? It's, it's about looking at others' interests before your own, isn't it? Will it give any of my three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, any hold on me to hinder my zeal or service for the Lord? Will it cater to my basic selfish interests? Or will it harm or cut me down in my physical well-being? It's incredible that the God of the universe has made our body a temple. The Holy Spirit, his temple is you, and you are the church. What am I going to do with this body? It's a stewardship, isn't it? Will it become a hindering weight or an enslaving habit in my life if I partake? Paul says, I will not be mastered by anything. Not everything is beneficial. Another question to ask, does it drag me through the gutter mentally? Scripture says, 2 Corinthians 10, take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Does it serve to draw me closer to the Lord? That's just a great question. Can I do this and will it help me grow closer to Jesus? I want to abide. I want to stay connected. I want to be more intimate with him so he can fill me with his spirit. Will this or that draw me closer to the Lord? It says in Scripture, don't love the world. Love the Savior. Can I imagine Christ doing this? Wow. If you can't say amen, say Ouch! That's one that gets me. Can I see Jesus doing this? It says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, anyone who claves, claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Oh, I'm thankful I've got the Holy Spirit to help me do that. Would I like to be doing this when Jesus returned? There's another, if you can't say amen, say ouch. If your father walked in the room, would you be doing it? You ever had one of those moments? Oh, no. I got one laugh. Thank you. Appreciate that. Good. Thank you, brother. Oh, that one get close to home? No. I mean, Jesus is coming any time. The king is returning soon. And so if he could come at any second, this challenges me. I want him to be pleased with what I'm doing when he appears. Well done, good and faithful servant. And, and we could just keep going. I, I'll highlight a couple more just really quickly. Can I ask God's blessing on it wholeheartedly. I think of Colossians 3:17 and this is amazing. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord. Everything we do and say should be as unto the Lord. It's all all of life is worship, isn't it? Can I do this as an expression of worship? That's challenging. Does it help me become more like the image of Christ? He's conforming us to Christ's image and character and one day in a resurrection body, but in character now is this stifling or stumbling my growth, my progressive sanctification, my growth towards Jesus' likeness? Or does it promote it? And then lastly, I mean, this is the big one. Paul says, in all that you do, whether, it, whether it's eating or drinking, just the minute details of life, whatever you do, do it all unto the glory of God. Do it for the glory of God. Whatever you do, all of life is worship. So you're a mom at home, you're changing diapers, or your dad working hard, or your student studying, or you're doing chores, the minute details of life, eating, drinking, whatever you do, watching TV, doing something on your phone, doing something on the internet. Can you do it for the glory of God? That's the great test. This is just me giving some recommendations from Scripture about representing our King. Father, we're thankful that there is truth. Pilate said, what is truth? And ironically, truth was standing right in front of him, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. There's no way to you except through your son, Father. That is a very exclusive thing to say. There is a narrow road. There is a narrow gate. 
There's a wide path, and it's popular, and everybody's walking on it. But then there are those that you've called, and you've been wooing us and working in our lives. And it's all your grace. We thank you for that. Lord, help us to represent you well as we walk down this narrow road. Help us to stand for the king. Help us to abide, stay in your word, this place where we find absolute truth, where we find your heart and your will for our lives. Help us to be so saturated with your word that our prayer lives are just us expressing your heart back to you so we might see effective change in this church. May our hearts be always filled with your word so that we can live a life that brings you honor and glory. Help us to do this. We're, again, so thankful that we're not left to ourselves to do this. We're not pulling ourselves up by our own moral bootstraps. And we do admit that none of us could ever keep these standards. None of us could ever be perfect. Uh, a man came to Jesus and said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And you, Lord Jesus, said, who is good but God alone? We know that we're not good enough. And that's why we need your grace. And that's why salvation is by grace through faith alone. May that grace inspire us to live a different life. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.